Are you a leader who wants to create a life worth living in your faith, family, and career? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Beyond the Rut, the podcast that shares encouraging stories and practical tools to help pull you out of your rut into a life worth living. I'm your host, Jerry Dugan, and I'm going to be joined by Waymaker, author, podcaster, John Mayo. He's an Army veteran, and he helps other people become Waymakers in their lives to redefine success, redefine themselves, so that you can be a unified person at home, at work, and everywhere you go. So when you're living more in alignment with who you are, what your values are, and you're expressing that in a way that's socially acceptable, of course, then you're going to find yourself very content in life, very happy, and doing well. So we're going to talk about things like compartmentalization versus integration and a lot of other cool things. Sit back, relax, grab a notebook and a pen, because here we go. All right. Hey, John, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, we met months ago uh, through some friends of ours, mutual friends, uh, Noble Gibbons Mm -hmm. from EQ Gangsta. I know that's not how he says it, but I love, I don't know, it's just, he needs to, and, and and then Trip Bodenheimer is the other guy from the yep. Shadows podcast, uh, and I knew those guys from a group called the Llama. Um, oh no, no, Leadership no, Lounge, right? Leadership Lounge. Those guys they started a group called the Lima Charlie Network. There we go. Okay. Um, so loud and clear for those who aren't military uh, lingo uh, sensitive, I guess. Uh, and so yeah, we've stayed in touch. They said John is somebody you got to meet. Uh, you guys got some very similar topics about living an intentional life, and uh, then on top of that, I mean, you're out of Colorado, so you got good hiking up there, and uh, mm-hmm. you were an Army veteran, so I mean, call me biased, but <laughs> I was like, I could probably relate to this guy. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So thanks for the introduction, Trip and Noble. Uh, we're gonna make the best of this. And, um, yeah. So so there you have it. Now you joined the Army as an artillery officer. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. And you did that intentionally too. <laughs> I did. I know, man. I'm a glutton for punishment and I went the O route. So. Yeah. I mean, it's funny for me to say that because everybody in the army volunteered, everybody in the military volunteered. Uh, yes. But uh, I was in an artillery unit, uh, but as a medic. So I got assigned there because the unit needed a medic, uh, not because I'm like, I'm going to go artillery and blow stuff up. But it's kind of cool. They almost let me pull the lanyard once. Um, almost. <laughs> almost. Uh, but this guy came along. He was an officer, something like, you know, captain, uh, guys. You know, battery commander. And he was like, that's a Geneva Convention violation. Get him out of there. And so they booted me out. But I guess it saved me from a lawsuit later on. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I, I didn't even think about that. Uh, You're right. <laughs> Downrange, down that could... Yeah. yeah, that could be gray. As a non-combatant, <laughs> I'm not supposed to operate crew-served weapons. So, uh, yeah, the, the, you don't get much more bigger than a uh, a cannon when it comes to yeah. crew-served weapons. But, um, you know, f- fun fact, I don't know if I shared this with you. Um, when I was in Iraq, we had this rookie join our unit, uh, mm-hmm. like right before, like the day or the day before that, uh, before we actually crossed the border into Iraq. Uh, so I was the first NCO this guy really met. And... Uh, about a week into operations, the guy had dropped a, uh, a round. I don't know what kind of round, but he dropped one on his hand. Of course, you know, the, you know those are heavy. They weigh yes. like 100 pounds. So uh, his thumb was dislocated. And the gunny brought him to me to treat him. And I'm like, oh, hey. You know, I'm thinking in my head, like, wow, I get to do my work now. Uh, but, you know, I had to stay calm, keep this guy calm. And I pulled out my aid bag. The guy, 
I guess three to four days into combat, all he had seen me do was jump on top of ammo trucks and kick ammo rounds off the truck into the sand so that the actual gun crews can get them to their cannons. This guy literally thought I was the ammo chief in the unit, not their medic. (laughs) So he sees me, he sees my aid bag. He looks at me, he looks at Gunny. He's like, Gunny, with all due respect, I thought you were going to take care of me. And you said you were going to take care of me. And I'm like, Private, you're starting to hurt my feelings, buddy. And and (laughs) And he's like, but he said he was going to take me to a medic. I'm like, again, you're starting to hurt my feelings here. And, uh, and then he then he said the, the coup de gras to his death knell here. And he was like, but Gunny said he was going to take me to the best medical support he had in the unit. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take a deep breath here. <laughs> and I was like, Gunny, let me show him my card. And so I pulled out my Geneva Convention card that identified me as a combat medic. He still didn't believe it. He was like, but I've seen you on the ammo trucks. And I'm like, that's because that's the closest I, get to, get, I can get to helping you out without committing a war crime. So that's yeah. why you see me up there. <laughs> Well, uh, man. what I love about what I love about that is you actually found ways to create value when someone wasn't hurt, which is super cool. Yeah. Um, none yeah, of, all of my medics were like doing medical stuff all the time <laughs> when there was no medical stuff to be done. So like the idea that you're jumping up there helping offload trucks is phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I, my first deployment was to Kosovo and uh, I was with a tank unit and uh, an infantry unit. And both of those guys, they didn't want Doc just sitting in his cot, sleeping all day, waiting for somebody to get hurt. So they they incorporated me into their operations as much as they could. Um, mm-hmm. So I get to ride in the tank, but I don't get to touch any of the buttons. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah you know, it's like if shooting happens, Doc, you just sit in that corner right there and get into the smallest ball you can. Why? Because we're going to be moving around and slinging rounds. Yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, and then with the infantry guys, they're like, all right, when stuff happens, see that guy right there? I'm like, yeah, he's going to be in the center. You be right on his hip at all times, uh, like saving Private Ryan. I'm like, wait, the medic died in that movie. And they're like, no, this is different, Doc. And we're like, okay, fine. Uh, see. But- it, it would have been hilarious if they just looked at you deadpan and been like, we know. <laughs> uh, I mean, oh, they yeah. had just stopped calling me medic and started calling me doc. So I think I found my way into their tribe by that point. But, uh, yeah. you, you know, if that patrol were a couple of days sooner, I think they exactly would have said something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny because to, to the jesting you're doing, um, like so many red blooded young men, I was like hell bent on going infantry. Yes. Right. And, uh, as I was going through college, we had our first son and then, uh, my bride, my wife's name's Lindsay. Lindsay was pregnant again. And, um, that wasn't going to change the trajectory for me militarily at that time in life. I was like, still infantry. She's like, all right, well, I knew who you were when we joined. But what happened was I contracted MRSA systemically. And (laughs) oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I had hundreds of cases of MRSA over the span. Uh, yeah. Over the span of a couple of years, I sought civilian doctors so that the military wouldn't know um, and realized that if I was always like humping it on foot, uh, I would be, it would be much harder for me to treat these things, uh, get access to antibiotics, things like that. And so I was like, well, what's the next best thing? It was either armor or artillery. And I'm so grateful for, uh, I went artillery because I loved it tremendously. And it's uh, the type of interconnected logistics, planning strategy and tactical ac- execution has just been phenomenal. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure, but I realized like, Hey, a howitzer doesn't just walk around. It, it mm-hmm. gets moved by something. So I was like, in that something I can hide, like I can bring a little bit more medical supplies 
without, you know, costing myself too much and hide them and be good to go. So that actually shifted my uh, trajectory to artillery so that I could secretly acquire medicine and have a few extra personal uh, care things so that I could stay in the fight and still go and do what I wanted to do uh, despite having that. And I saw medical professionals and they're like, yeah, you're, you're kind of screwed. Um, at some point your body will create an immunity, but that'll take years and there's nothing else we can do for you. Oh, so man. they advised that I not go combat arms, the civilians. They're like, you should get a desk job. I was like, yeah, thanks doc. And um, left and did what I did. So but it's funny because you're giving me a hard time. I was like, I really did it on purpose. You're right. That's how smart I am. I, uh, I'm stupid enough that I chose this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Now, your role, uh, were you a platoon leader? Uh, so you were in charge of all the guns or did you run a, yeah, a fire so direction center? I, I had the the um, opportunity to get it taste all that artillery really has to offer. I did the fire support side for a while, um, which is, you know, where I'm embedded with infantry and we're doing that work. And then I went to the gun line side on the fire, specifically in the fire direction. Mm -hmm. And then that went so well that uh, the leadership trust invested their trust in me and elevated me to the battalion fire direction center, which essentially oh, wow. controls and coordinates fires for our entire brigade in the brigade battle space. So uh, I controlled the entire battalion from there. And that was a phenomenal opportunity that, um, really taught me so much about echelon of efforts and all these other things that I could geek out on all day, but to stop that from happening, uh, you know, started ground pounding and then went up to battalion fire direction. And that's where I spent the the end of my career and the bulk of my time. Yeah. The, the neat thing, I know this isn't specifically a leadership podcast, but you know, that's what I do too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that I, I definitely credit to learning about, like in, in the civilian world, we talk a lot about matrixed leadership or matrixed organizations mm -hmm. and teams of teams, which I, General McChrystal made popular. It was in field artillery where I really learned that concept because I, as a medic, reported to a different unit altogether in the headquarters battery. And then I was attached to our Bravo battery uh, out of the three firing batteries. And, and now people are like, what is he talking about? Just roll with me, guys. It's like uh, I worked in the mailroom and then they said, now go work in sales. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you're still <laughs> doing mailroom work. <laughs> so yes. I don't know if that helped. But uh, but in that, so I have a duty to serve those 100 people in Bravo battery. But I officially report to some guy who's like 150 miles away. But I got to work autonomously as the medic supporting and reporting to this uh, lieutenant. But at the same time, the lieutenant in a hierarchical structure is in charge of the the 25 to 30 guys reporting to him. But then when a fire mission showed up, a completely different guy, uh, a couple of ranks lower, took command of that same platoon. So now when it was fire mission, all of a sudden Lieutenant Rivera is no longer in charge. Staff Sergeant um, Oh, shoot. What was his last name? But that's not important. But Staff Sergeant, many levels lower, was now the guy in charge. And I, I learned this the hard way because um, our captain asked for a status update on rounds. LT wasn't thinking. He said, Doc, go ahead and ask. I pick up the radio and I say, hey, what's the status on rounds? And I got a very passionate plea <laughs> to uh, stay off the radio net that this radio net belonged to him. And I just put the receiver back up where it was hanging in our Humvee. LT looked at me horrified. He's like, doc, I am so sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I think I have a hole here in the back of this truck. I'm just going to hide in that for now. Yeah. Uh, and that's that conversation. Yeah. 
that uh, conversation was not over. No, like that, no, right? there <laughs> was a part two. I'm like, he knows. <laughs> I was on the receiving end of part two of that conversation. And uh, Santiago, Staff Sergeant Santiago, I never remember it because I was at Parade Rest. Uh, it was one of the few times they saw one NCO at Parade Rest to another NCO. And uh, I was like, it was a very powerful lesson learned, Sergeant. I will never do it again. Uh, I'm not going to throw LT under the bus. But, <laughs> and then LT came out. He's like, yeah, Sergeant, it was, it was my fault. I just told him to ask for the update and I knew better. And, and Sergeant, and Sergeant Santiago turned to the LT and said, sir, you know better. And he walked off and I was like, wow, you're his boss's boss. He goes, yes, but he's also right in a fire mission. He's in charge and you don't override that. I was like, wow. So what? The the last thing on on or the the one idea that I'd love to just tap on real quick with that uh, scenario you just outlined is there's this misconception right in leadership where um, it's like black and white you know the officer is going to lead and do everything well Hollywood's done a great job of showing us how many officers were killed in different conflicts sometimes yes. intentionally left out to dry for being arrogant naive and stupid. Um, and you wanted the approaches because I was an officer and I'm actually very proud of that and unapologetic about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reason why that is, is because I was fortunate enough as a, as a young guy to have a master sergeant take me under his wing and review, uh, remove the naivety, you could say, early on and really bang <laughs> into my head that my job was to be a conduit and to serve and to protect. So for myself, the best relationships I had, some of the best ones in the military were always with my uh, non-commissioned officer counterparts. And I really worked to advocate to elevate their, them and protect them from higher and from other units and to remove obstacles. And that created a, a very symbiotic relationship earlier on. I still made some pretty embarrassing mistakes as a, as a, a young second Lieutenant that I, I think about when I'm getting too proud and they humble me. But uh, you know, very early on, those relationships helped to catalyze a lot of efforts that had I been sticking to the more traditional officer route, uh, they would have had to beat into me. So <laughs> I, I've been so grateful and, you know, shout out to those gentlemen who invested yeah. that early yeah. on, but that there's influence and then there's structure. And the sooner you tap into the influential chain and are a conduit for that, you are so you're able to amplify your impact so much more thoroughly and further than if you just try to cling to structure and, and, uh, because I'm in charge, you know, people will break you off with that idea. So, (laughs) (laughs) and and the thing that gets results is that influence, that, that connection, that trust. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if we lean so much on the authority or the structure that's in place, we're not really doing the work to, to build relationships. And, uh, and, and so this point, like towards the end of your military career, you're, you're growing. Like you've you've had a good taste of different elements of uh, field artillery, different styles of leadership. People have poured into you, and then you make the decision to leave. And it's it's similar mm-hmm. to the decision that I made to leave the army as well, because I I was kind of faced with the same thing on the enlisted side, or I could have gone the PA route. But either way, I had options, and I, I chose to step away as well. Um, tell us about what drove that decision to leave. What were you going through uh, at that time? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because we just had the pleasure of reminiscing in a way that I I don't often get to enjoy. It actually sparked a a memory that I don't think I've ever articulated uh, in a conversation like this before. So one of the things that was interesting is I knew that I was at the end of the opportunity to directly lead um, soldiers, right? Which is, I, I loved that 
that responsibility yeah. that was such a joy for me and a, and a blessing and a gift. And, and I knew that I had about, you know, six to 10 years, depending on how it shook out of like heavy staff work. So essentially office jobs were just being punished every day. Right. Um, so like, I think part of my eye was looking at, okay, I need to get past this like six year jump until I'm leading again. Um, which was just an interesting caveat, I think, that helped to prepare my mind to potentially make the harsh pivots I'll jump into very aggressively now. But because um, I knew I wanted to leave and serve and make impact. That was my desire to the best of my ability and and to get out of my own way as much as possible. And um, professionally, that was going pretty well, um, rising fast, all that stuff. What was not going well is that I was very good, uh, born from some things that occurred in my childhood at compartmentalizing who I was in what situations. And that was creating issues that I became painfully aware of on the home front by one of my sons, actually. He was having uh, nightmares every night at three in the morning, like bad men coming and murdering our family, dark nightmares. Wow. They, he, they don't watch shows like this. And he was yeah. three at the time. Um, so this three-year-old's having these nightmares every night and waking up crying and I'm going and comforting him. And, um, you know, I was only home about 10, 15% of the time. And when I was home, I drank because, um, that's how we coped in the military. And I don't, you know, that that's just how it was right for me. And so like, I'm a little groggy, I'm a little bit inebriated and I'm trying to comfort him. And I'm like, God, why is my son being tormented by these nightmares? Like I thought that, you know, under my belief system, that was the head of the house, these types of things should attack me, not my children. If I'm protect, like, cause I'm the protection. Yeah. He's like, yeah, it's because you're failing to, you've abdicated your responsibilities and are failing to lead your home as you, I, as I've intended for you to. It's like, it's on you guy. But like, that's exactly what I got in that moment. And it freaking crushed me. And the next morning, uh, but in a good way, like it was this moment of awareness is what I call it. And the next morning I, uh, had this opportunity to have one of those uh, gunny style conversations with myself in the mirror. And I vowed that I would do whatever was necessary to shift the trajectory of my life so that I became a single unified person because I was able to identify that I was becoming that which I hated because I'd compartmentalized myself such that in some areas I was, things were excellent, but in other areas, I was beginning to see the storm clouds of destruction and, um, despair and death. And if I didn't do something to unify myself across all of the domains of my life, uh, I'd probably lose my family and I'd probably ultimately end up dying younger than needed uh, because of that. So that realization sparked a lot of questions and, uh, you know, shifts that led me to realize with what the future held, the best service that I could do with the greatest, uh, with the longest impact would be to exit the service start a new path myself, force the changes and utilize the opportunity to force those changes and really invest in what I saw as my primary responsibility to raise my four sons and be the husband that my wife deserved uh, and lead my house well by fixing myself first. And that's what triggered that change. So love that. And there's something you touched on too, the, the word compartmentalization, you know, that's something that I know for us as men, we're socialized and raised to think that way, you know, suck it up, drive on. Uh, hey, that is home. You shut that down. You got this to do. And and we pride ourselves on it in a way. Uh, but one of my former guests, Johnny Serpola, he used to run Camping World. Uh, he used to own it. 
before that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm going down the rabbit hole there. But anyway, pulling back, Johnny. <laughs> uh, Johnny Serpola. Uh, so he and his wife were working on some some things that they wanted to achieve. He comes back into the workplace and he realizes this toxic culture had evolved while he was absent as a leader. And he also was bringing his worst self, not his best self, to work. And, and he realized... No, like there isn't a work person and a home person. Like that's mm-hmm. the same person going from one place to another. And we try like crazy to compartmentalize or create these airtight capsules within our ship ourselves mm-hmm. to, to close off a bad part to do this or that part to do this. But it's more like the Titanic. And if you're familiar with the Titanic and why it sank was their compartments were not watertight. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, you flooded enough on one and it just spilled over into the next one and spilled over to the next one. And that's really what happens with ourselves is that if we think we're compartmentalizing, we're really just avoiding the issue that's growing and growing and growing. And then it, it threatens to overtake us. And, um, and so that's what you face. And you're like, nope, not doing that. Let's go ahead and throw open all those yeah. doors and let's fix this. Yeah. And, and to that, like the army was getting the best of me. My soldiers were getting the best of me. My family was getting less than the scraps. And, uh, I was being, a, I was becoming an absolute monster in private mm. to myself and, and what I would engage with, with, um, you know, certain friend groups and, uh, people outside of those two spheres, you know, when I was away from family and the army and that realization of like, Oh, like this monster is growing in the darkness and in the quiet and in these areas. And my family's getting the bare minimum but it's comparatively maybe more looks good to others, but I know better for what I should be providing them. And then, uh, you know, the one thing that comforts me somewhat in a, in a way is that at least I gave my soldiers my best, but I do think about how shamefully little that is compared to what they could have had, had I been the single individual that I am now, you know, cause then my family would have gotten the best. My soldiers would have gotten the best there, that, that other sphere would not have existed or, you know, in that time and how much better could that have been? So then it's like, yeah, don't, don't draw comfort, never go back, you know, die first. So the path is forward, (laughs) you know? Yeah. You reframed also like your mindset around pain and leveraging pain. Uh, But it sounds like before you even got there though, you you restructured what success looked like for you. And and for you, success Mm -hmm. was that unified person across every area of your life. Um, Now, did you write this out in terms of like a life vision or goals, a contract? Like how did this come about to make this transition for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing on compartmentalization that I do think is important is there is a time and a place for it. Mm -hmm. But the the thing that's broken is especially from a young age where you go through certain experiences where compartmentalization is a survival mechanism, you never learn uh, about the reintegration of self. And an example, like, and that begins to create potentially multiple versions of yourself, which is what I was facing. Um, an example where it is very, I think, appropriate to compartmentalize uh, is like one of my sons was lost in the woods a while back and we had to find him. And I kept having, my mind goes through worst case scenarios, you know, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. And uh, there's times like I was feeling big emotions, right? About, you know, finding his body, things like that. I mean, we were deep in the country and, and I was really concerned about it. And in those moments, it was like, nope, now's not the time. And I had to hit that go mode and turn off all emotion, turn off all these other things, go very logically into that thing. And then once he was discovered, I very intentionally, and he was alive and he was okay, you know, just a little banged up. I was able to say, okay, now John experience and feel all of that, which you just experienced that you shut off. And, you know, I picked him up and I had tears running down my face and, and I allowed myself to let go of all the dark that I was concerned about and the pain of loss and fear. And I experienced that. And once that experience 
it, you know, I let it in, I let it last, it didn't need to last long. And then I let it go. And, you know, uh, over the next few days, walking through the experience with my son and our, as a family, we were able to experience it, what that did to us, how it made us stronger and then let it go and move on with their lives. And uh, that was so critically important, but to the transition, uh, I just knew that I was on a trajectory to my own personal hell. And that I wasn't going to allow it to be that way. So for myself, it was like, I like, what if I made a change? And what if I became like the best version of myself, right? And like, I, I had heard this analogy of if the best version of yourself walked up to you on your deathbed, how big would the gap be? Oh, wow. And yeah, like, how big would that gap be? And I realized, like, one, I need to find what that best version looks like because I don't know. And what I first did was define how much worse will this get if I don't make a change? And then, so like, I defined that. Then I took a, took real good stock of my surroundings. And I was like, what is the best version of self? And like, how big is that gap? And I realized, and uh, I owe a lot of thanks to this like mental scaffolding to Dr. Jordan Peterson, because I read a lot of his books and listened to all of his podcasts at the time. But I would say genuinely 90 to 95% of myself, I wanted to burn off and leave behind. So it was yeah. a very painful experience to realize like who I want to become. That gap is huge right now, you know, at that point in my life. And there's a lot of work to be done to begin closing it. So um, there, you know, I, I advocate this idea of personal contracts and iterative forward movement that creates progress over time. But um, there, I just took the one action that I had the strength and capacity to take at that time and began moving forward accordingly. Yeah. I, I've never really asked anybody this on this show, and I don't know why, because the show's been around for eight years. Uh, <laughs> but on a broad level, um, when you think about the person you want to be, what does that person look like in the areas of your life, like as a whole unified person, if, if you have a moment to share that? Yeah, absolutely. Like for myself individually or holistically, just so I understand your question. Um, I, I got it. Yeah, thank you. I was like, <laughs> yep, both, I got you. I think. <laughs> yeah. So so I'll, I'll make it uh, universally applicable, but start for myself because I know who I am at least, which took a lot of work. But uh, first I realized that I didn't trust what I would say. So like when I was looking at, my own, like this ideal self, I was like, I want to be able to, I was disgusted with who I saw in the mirror. Once I had this moment of awareness with my son, uh, I was disgusted and enraged and ashamed. And I was like, I want to look in the mirror and be content. Like, I want to look in the mirror and see like, that guy's fighting. He's moving forward. Right. Um, so the first thing I want to do was rebuild trust with myself. And I realized that my ideal self would be someone who trusted themselves. So like, if I say I'm going to do it, I know it's going to happen. If I say I'm not going to do it, like I'm not going to drink tonight or something, it ain't going to happen. It's not going right. So I needed to rebuild that trust. So my ideal self, I think it starts with the self always, which is why I'm starting there. Like universally, um, do you trust yourself, value yourself and respect yourself? Cause if you don't, you have work to do there first before you do anything else. And then I looked at my family. I was like, I want to be this type of husband, uh, for my bride. Right. And I'm not, I want to be this type of leader for my home and I'm not, um, I want to be this type of father. And the list went on and on. And then, and then I realized like, man, three out of three, I am sucking on the, I don't trust myself. I don't respect myself. Wow. Now that I see that, that's really damning. Um, I don't think I'm being the husband that I need to be. Whoa. Um, not being the father. So that, that really juxtaposition between heaven and hell and, and realizing, you know, starting with the self and then working to those closest relationships, that was the strength I had at the time. And then like part of the dreaming was like, then I'm also leading in the community. And then I'm also creating impact beyond my immediate community. And I was like, how dare I be so foolish as to try and change the world when 
when I'm a mess. Um, so what if I began putting work into myself and, and that kind of cycle really struck it, but my ideal self now is a, a continuation and propagation of someone who's a, a single unified person who pursues significance, creates immense value and builds strong community. And for me, that has a specific application of I'm willing to do things that others won't so that I can do things that others can't for the specific reason of being able to call other folks forward and equip them to do the same and become what I call waymakers. And that is what I see as my ideal self. And I'm working to realize that every day. Nice. And I think part of the benefit of having just read your book, Be Relentless, right before we got on this call, is I knew deep down inside you'd be able to answer that question with uh, <laughs> with confidence and clarity and, and attack it. So thank you for indulging me on that. You know, I've never asked anybody, what does that look like? And, and the reason why I asked it, everybody, uh, was, you know, I've been doing this show for eight years, and I know people who struggle with what is my life going to look like? What is this rut that this nebulous thing that Jerry talks about all the time and how to get out of it? Even he wrote a book about it, but what does it look like in my life? And I thought, well, John's probably got an example. I know I've got an example. I've shared it on the show a number of times. And, And so you showed us like, it doesn't have to be lofty and crazy. Like I'm going to be president of the blah, blah, blah society and start a nonprofit that'll put shoes on every foot in the world. You know, like you, you started very, very personally and uh, realistically. And that was, I'm going to start with me and I want to be able to look in the mirror and trust myself. And that is huge. I was like, wow, how many guys are going through that? Yeah. And and even something to, to reverse engineer and tear down the scaffolding real quick on the opposite idea. Right. Because like a lot, I think it's very easy to become angry at what we see going on in the world. You know, Mm -hmm. doesn't matter where you get your news from. It's like, can feel very despair filled and like, well, I have to make this significant impact. And, um, you know, maybe found this thing that puts shoes on every feet to use your example, just to keep it light and fast. But that's so that's such a one. It's a lie. It's not true. And it's damning because it creates this feeling of helplessness. Well, like might not even might as well not even try them because I'm not going to be able to do that. And you know, the the way I look at it is who's going to, who is going to remember you 10 years after you're dead? Uh, It's not going to be all all the folks that you don't know right now because you're not doing anything and you have ideas and no one cares, right? It's going to be the people closest to you and who's going to have to live with the type of person you are. Well, yourself, period. Um, you hope your family and friends, but if you're too much of a mess, you may lose them. So, you know, if we just look at it, even from there, it's like the most logical place to start is yourself and your family, because one, you can't get rid of yourself. Um, well you shouldn't. And two, uh, you only have this one chance with your family and friends. So like, do you want to lose that? So get all of that in order and then think what is what is the next thing within reach that I may be able to impact or create? And then, you know, pull on that thread continuously of like, well, how about this? Or what if that, and, you know, and, and work your way to something where you're actually be making impact, right. As opposed to being an idea ist, not ideal, but idea ist who just has ideas, vents about them and then does nothing. Right. Which is akin to like mental masturbation or something fruitless, but um, <laughs> yeah. And anywho, Oh, uh, I laughed. I was like, mental. Yes, I do that a lot. Wait. Okay. Yes. Yes. We're talking about that. Okay. <laughs> um, trying to keep my G rating on this this program here. Um, a, a concept that you, you 
you touched on a few minutes back, I saw it in the book, Be Relentless, is the idea of this personal contract. And, and you talk about like your first one was a 21-day contract and you, you do these 100-day contracts. And then you've got this formula. Uh, if you want to see progress in your life towards this ideal person you want to become, you, you got to have that intentional living. And you talk about intentional living in your book, mm-hmm. uh, plus relentless action plus SISU, S-I-S-U. Uh, and then it, it seems to come together when you do these contracts too. And, and so I guess start with what are these personal contracts? And then mm-hmm. this, this formula I just threw out there, uh, tell us about that and how those two come together and, and help people see the progress they want to see in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. So the probably I learned about this after writing about personal contracts, but a, a lot of people have heard of Andy Frisilla and 75 hard and the 75 hard is probably the most popular um, thing to point to as yeah. a personal contract, and right? It's hard. Essentially <laughs> it is right. He, he gives you this list of things that you have to do every day or it starts over. Right. Well, funny enough, before learning about that, I had this idea of like, what if I committed to a couple behaviors that helped to that like I know I can do now or that will stretch me now, but that I think that I might be able to accomplish over the span of 20, 50, 100 days, whatever the case might be, that could help me become uh, more of the ideal self and less of the self I really don't care about. And, you know, I, I went through a year of doing that from 21 day contracts to 70 day contracts, just across the spectrum. And, and each time, like I'd pick something mental, spiritual, physical, uh, to cultivate discipline and, uh, begin earning that self-trust back, knowing that I do it, even if I didn't want to all those types of things. Uh, but that's what the personal contract is. It's like, I'm going to choose one to three things, no more than three that I'm going to do every single day without fail for X amount of time. Because I believe that's going to help me cultivate or become that which I want to be, you know, the skills and strength that I want or um, and help, you know, cultivate the skills and help me to become that which I want to be. And that's what the personal contract is. And then the formula you touched on is, okay, well, to design something like that, I have to be intentional. I have to think, what is it that I want to do? And how is that going to help me in this path? And so like, asking all those questions and the more intentional we become, the more aware and the more, uh, the more questions we ask, the more we think, the more we actually live and experience life as well, which is one of the extraordinary benefits. So intentionality, purposefulness is absolutely critical, uh, to be able to accomplish any of the things that we want to. And, uh, so that's that intentional living element of it. And then the next one is be relentless. Well, uh, no one is coming to help us, right? So it's up to us to save ourselves. And in that, we had better well be very relentless in that pursuit, especially over time, uh, if we have any hope of moving the needle to where we want it to be. And then CSU is a finished concept that essentially means uh, CSU begins where grit ends. So it's this idea of indomitability, tenacity, um, you know, just unconquerable will in the face of extraordinary adversity that we can cultivate through intentional hardship and uh, relentless pursuit of our ideals, right? So when we combine those three things together, I advocate that it makes, it creates progress. And that progress is aimed at this idea of who we want to become, which is really best articulated as a hypothesis. Because if we use it as a hypothesis in a working draft, we can update it as we improve and we gain better insight on who it is we truly should become. But that is what the formula uh, does right, uh, intentionality, relentless action, and CSU creates progress. I love that. And uh, folks, if you want to learn more about that, you got to get a copy of the book. 
Be Relentless. It's on Amazon. Um, and we're running out of time. Dang it, man. <laughs> time flies when you're having a great time. Uh, now, your website is johnmayo.com. Is that right? That is correct. And you, and you spelled it perfectly. Oh, There's good. no H in the John. Um, but yes, johnmayo.com. And uh, there you'll see a, a couple of things, if I may. I don't want to. Yeah, no, go for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you. So, so a couple of things, if you're interested in learning more. One, I've created a community around these ideas and it's called the Waymaker Community. And you can join that for free um, for the open source element of it. And then there's different tiers for different levels of involvement beyond that. But if you're interested in these ideas and concept, go over to johnmail.com and you can learn about the Waymaker Community. Additionally, I'm a, a strategic advisor. And then my book and some of the cool things I'm doing with, at, over at the, um, we've also created a performance supplement in my other company. And you can learn about that at johnmayo.com as well. And it's called CC Stamina. So a lot of fun things, but it's nice to be able to have one thing to point to. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. One one website to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Jerry's the Lord of the Rings dork. No kidding. Uh, now, before we go though, any final words of wisdom, John? What comes to mind is uh, it always has been and always will be 100% up to you. No one's coming to save you. So get to work. I love that. I love that. It, it even draws back to one of the chapters in your book too. John, it was great to have you on here. I look forward to staying in touch with you. We're members of the Heroes Media Group and uh, we're going to make great things happen. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Wow. You're probably wanting to connect with John right away and I don't blame you. So check out the show notes at beyondtherut.com slash 405. There you'll find related episodes. You'll find links to all of John's resources, uh, Sisu Stamina, so much more. And if you're a leader and you're struggling right now with people who are exiting your organization, morale is low, and you've done everything you think you can, but you're starting to feel burned out or that you're about to burn out, then reach out to me. Just send me an email at info at beyondtherut.com or go to my website beyondtherut.com click on the button that says work with me and you'll find out some more information there because i want to help you as a leader create that life that's worth living in your faith family and career i want you to succeed and create that legacy because leaders create legacies everybody can create a legacy because everybody can be a leader but not everybody can be a good leader and i can help you make sure that you are being that good leader leaving a positive impact influencing generations to come and i mean just exponential the impact that we all have so again info at beyondtherut.com or go to the website beyondtherut.com and there you'll find that button that says work with me or work with jerry something like that now i'm glad you joined me on this episode and look forward to joining you again on the next one but until then go live life beyond the rut take care